Part six, chapter three of a popular history of astronomy during the nineteenth century. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A popular history of astronomy during the nineteenth century by Agnes Mary Clerke. Chapter three, part two. Progress of knowledge regarding the sun. What we have thus glanced at is but a fragment of the truly surprising mass of work accomplished by Bailey in the course of a variously occupied life. A rare combination of qualities fitted him for his task. Unvarying health, undisturbed equanimity, methodical habits, the power of directed and sustained thought combined to form in him an intellectual toiler of the surest though not perhaps of the highest quality he was in harness almost to the end he was destined scarcely to know the miseries of enforced idleness or of consciously failing powers in eighteen forty two he completed the laborious reduction of lalande's great catalogue undertaking at the request of the british association and was still engaged in seeing it through the press when he was attacked with what proved his last and it was probably his first serious illness he however recovered sufficiently to attend the Oxford Commemoration of July 2, 1844, where an honorary degree of D.C.L. was confirmed upon him in company with Airy and Struve, but sank rapidly after the effort, and died on the 30th of August following at the age of 70, lamented and esteemed by all who knew him. It is now time to consider his share in the promotion of solar research, eclipses of the sun both ancient and modern were a specialty with him and he was fortunate in those which came under his observation such phenomena are of three kinds partial annular and total in a partial eclipse the moon instead of passing directly between us and the sun slips by as it were a little on one side thus cutting off from our sight only a portion of his surface. An annular eclipse, on the other hand, takes place when the moon is indeed centrally interposed, but falls short of the apparent size required for the entire concealment of the solar disk, which consequently remains visible as a bright ring, or annulus, even when the obscuration is at its height. In a total eclipse, on the contrary, the sun completely disappears behind the dark body of the moon. The difference of the two latter varieties is due to the fact that the apparent diameter of the sun and moon are so nearly equal as to gain alternate preponderance one over the other, through the slight periodical changes in their respective distances from the earth. Now, on the 15th of May, 1836, an annular eclipse was visible in the northern parts of Great Britain, and was observed by Bailey at Inchbonny, near Jedburgh. It was here that he saw the phenomenon which obtained the name of Bailey's Beads, from the notoriety conferred upon it by his vivid description. When the cusps of the sun, 
he writes, were about forty degrees asunder, a row of lucid points like a string of bright beads, irregular in size and distance from each other, suddenly formed round that part of the circumference of the moon that was about to enter on the sun's disk. Its formation, indeed, was so rapid that it presented the appearance of having been caused by the ignition of a fine train of gunpowder. Finally, as the moon pursued her course, the dark intervening spaces, which at their origin had the appearance of lunar mountains in high relief and which still continued attached to the sun's border, were stretched out into long, black, thick, parallel lines, joining the limbs of the sun and moon, when all at once they suddenly gave way and left the circumference of the sun and moon in those points, as in the rest, comparatively smooth and circular, and the moon perceptibly advanced on the face of the sun. These curious appearances were not an absolute novelty. Weber, in 1791, and von Zach in 1820, had seen the beads. Van Swinden had described the belts, or threads. These last were, moreover, as Bailey clearly perceived, completely analogous to the black ligament, which formed so troublesome a feature in the transits of Venus in 1764 and 1769, and which, to the regret and confusion, though no longer to the surprise of observers, was renewed in that of 1874. The phenomenon is largely an effect of what is called irradiation, by which a bright object seems to encroach upon a dark one, but under good atmospheric and instrumental conditions it becomes inconspicuous. The beads must always appear when the projected lunar edge is serrated with mountains. In Bailey's observation they were exaggerated and distorted by an irradiative clinging together of the limbs of sun and moon. The immediate result, however, was powerfully to stimulate attention to solar eclipses in their physical aspect. Never before had an occurrence of the kind been expected so eagerly or prepared for so actively as that which was total over central and southern Europe on the 8th of July, 1842. Astronomers hastened from all quarters to the favored region. The Astronomer Royal Airy, repaired to Turin, Bailey to Pavia, Otto Struve threw aside his work amidst the stars at Polkova, and went south as far as Lipitz. Schumacher traveled from Altona to Vienna, Arago from Paris to Perpignan. Nor did their trouble go unrewarded. The expectations of the most sanguine were outdone by the wonders disclosed. Bailey, to whose narrative we again have recourse, had set up his Dolan's achromatic in an upper room of the University of Pavia, and was eagerly engaged in noting a partial repetition of the singular appearances seen by him in 1836, when he was astounded by a tremendous burst of applause from the streets below, and at the same moment was electrified at the sight of one of the most brilliant and splendid phenomena that can well be imagined. For at that instant, the dark body of the moon was suddenly surrounded with a corona, or kind of bright glory, similar in shape and relative magnitude to that which painters draw round the heads of saints, and which by the French is designated an aureola. 
Pavia contains many thousand inhabitants, the major part of whom were, at this early hour, walking about the streets and squares or looking out of windows, in order to witness this long-talked-of phenomenon. And when the total obscuration took place, which was instantaneous, there was a universal shout from every observer which made the welkin ring, and for the moment withdrew my attention from the object with which I was immediately occupied. I had indeed anticipated the appearance of a luminous circle round the moon during the time of total obscurity, but I did not expect, from any of the accounts of preceding eclipses that I had read, to witness so magnificent an exhibition as that which took place. The breadth of the corona, measured from the circumference of the moon, appeared to me to be nearly equal to half the moon's diameter. It had the appearance of brilliant rays the light was most dense close to the border of the moon and became gradually and uniformly more attenuate as its distance therefrom increased assuming the form of diverging rays in a rectilinear line which at the extremity were more divided and of an unequal length so that in no part of the corona could i discover the regular and well-defined shape of a ring at its outer margin it appeared to me to have the sun for its centre, but I have no means of taking any accurate measures for determining this point. Its colour was quite white, not pearl colour, nor yellow, nor red, and the rays had a vivid and flickering appearance, somewhat like that which a gaslight illumination might be supposed to assume if formed into a similar shape. Splendid and astonishing, however, as this remarkable phenomenon really was, and although it could not fail to call forth the admiration and applause of every beholder, yet I must confess that there was at the same time something in its singular and wonderful appearance that was appalling, and I can readily imagine that uncivilized nations may occasionally have become alarmed and terrified at such an object more especially at times when the true cause of the occurrence may have been but faintly understood and the phenomenon itself wholly unexpected but the most remarkable circumstance attending the phenomenon was the appearance of three large protuberances apparently emanating from the circumference of the moon but evidently forming a portion of the corona they had the appearance of mountains of a prodigious elevation their color was red tinged with lilac or purple. Perhaps the color of the peach blossom would more nearly represent it. They somewhat resembled the snowy tops of the alpine mountains, when colored by the rising or setting sun. They resembled the alpine mountains also in another respect, inasmuch as their light was perfectly steady, and had none of that flickering or sparkling motion so visible in other parts of the corona. All the three projections were of the same roseate cast of color, and very different from the brilliant vivid white light that formed the corona, but they differed from each other in magnitude. The whole of these three protuberances were visible even to the last moment of total obscuration. At least I never lost sight of them when looking in that direction, and when the first ray of light was admitted from the sun, they vanished with the corona altogether and daylight was instantaneously restored. Notwithstanding unfavorable weather, the red flames were perceived 
with little less clearness and no less amazement from the superega than at pavia and were even discerned by mr airy with the naked eye their form the astronomer royal wrote was nearly that of saw-teeth in the position proper for a circular saw turned round in the same direction in which the hands of a watch turn their colour was a full lake red and their brilliancy greater than that of any other part of the ring the height of these extraordinary objects was estimated by arago at two minutes of arc representing at the sun's distance an actual elevation of fifty four thousand miles when carefully watched the rose flush of their illumination was perceived to fade through violet to white as the light returned the same changes in a reversed order having accompanied their first appearance their forms however during about three minutes of visibility showed no change although of so apparently unstable a character as to suggest to arago mountains on the point of crumbling into ruins through top heaviness the corona both as to figure and extent presented very different appearances at different stations this was no doubt due to varieties in atmospheric conditions at the superega for instance all details of structure seemed to have been effaced by the murky air only a comparatively feeble ring of light being seen to encircle the moon elsewhere a brilliant radiated formation was conspicuous spreading at four opposite points into four vast luminous expansions compared to feather plumes or aigrettes arago or perpignan noticed considerable irregularities in the divergent rays some appeared curved and twisted a few lay across the others in a direction almost tangential to the moon's limb the general effect being described as that of a hank of thread in disorder at lipisk where the sun stood much higher above the horizon than in italy or france the corona showed with surprising splendor its apparent extent was judged by struve to be no less than twenty-five minutes more than six times Airy's estimate while the great plumes spread their radiance to three or four degrees from the dark lunar edge so dazzling was the light that many well-instructed persons denied the totality of the eclipse nor was the error without precedent although the appearances attending respectively a total and an annular eclipse are in reality wholly dissimilar in the latter case the surviving ring of sunlight becomes so much enlarged by irradiation that the interposed dark lunar body is reduced to comparative insignificance or even invisibility mclaurin tells us that during an eclipse of this character which he observed at edinburgh in seventeen thirty seven gentlemen by no means short-sighted declared themselves unable to discern the moon upon the sun without the aid of a smoked glass and bailey who however was short-sighted could distinguish in eighteen thirty six with the naked eye no trace of the globe of purple velvet which the telescope revealed as projected upon the face of the sun moreover the diminution of light is described by him as little more than might be caused by a temporary cloud passing over the sun the birds continued in full song 
and one cock in particular was crowing with all his might while the annulus was forming. Very different were the effects of the eclipse of 1842, as to which some interesting particulars were collected by Arago. Beasts of burden, he tells us, paused in their labor, and could by no amount of punishment be induced to move until the sun reappeared. Birds and beasts abandoned their food. Linnets were found dead in their cages. Even ants suspended their toil. Diligence horses, on the other hand, seemed as insensible to the phenomenon as locomotives. The convolvulus and some other plants closed their leaves, but those of the mimosa remained open. The little light that remained was of a livid hue. One observer described the general coloration as resembling the lees of wine but human faces showed pale olive or greenish. We may then rest assured that none of the remarkable obscurations recorded in history were due to eclipses of the annular kind. The existence of the corona is no modern discovery. Indeed, it is too conspicuous an apparition to escape notice from the least attentive or least practiced observer of a total eclipse. Nevertheless, explicit references to it are rare in early times plutarch however speaks of a certain splendor compassing round the hidden edge of the sun as a regular feature of total eclipses and the corona is expressly mentioned in a description of an eclipse visible at corfu in 968 a d the first to take the phenomenon into scientific consideration was kepler he showed from the orbital positions at the time of the sun and moon that an eclipse observed by Clavius at Rome in 1567 could not have been annular, as the dazzling coronal radiance visible during the obscuration had caused it to be believed. Although he himself never witnessed a total eclipse of the sun, he carefully collected and compared the remarks of those more fortunate and concluded that the ring of flame-like splendor seen on such occasions was caused by the reflection of the solar rays from matter condensed in the neighborhood either of the sun or moon. To the solar explanation he gave his own decided preference, but with one of those curious flashes of half-prophetic insight characteristic of his genius, declared that it should be laid by ready for use, not brought into immediate requisition. So literally was his advice acted upon, that the theory, which we now know to be, broadly speaking, the correct one, only emerged from the repository of anticipated truths after 236 years of almost complete retirement, and even then, timorously and with hesitation. The first eclipse of which the attendant phenomena were observed with tolerable exactness was that which was central in the south of France, May 12, 1706. Cassini then put forward the view that the crown of pale light seen round the lunar disk was caused by the illumination of the zodiacal light, but it failed to receive the attention which, as it stepped in the right direction, it undoubtedly merited. Nine years later, we meet with Halley's comments on a similar event, the first which had occurred in London since March 20, 1140, 
by nine in the morning of may third seventeen fifteen the obscuration he tells us was about ten digits when the face and color of the sky began to change from perfect serene azure blue to a more dusky livid color having an eye of purple intermixed a few seconds before the sun was all hid there discovered itself round the moon a luminous ring about a digit or perhaps a tenth part of the moon's diameter in breadth it was of a pale whiteness or rather pearl color seeming to be a little tinged with the colors of the iris and to be concentric with the moon whence i concluded it the moon's atmosphere but the great height thereof far exceeding our earth's atmosphere and the observation of some who found the breadth of the ring to increase on the west side of the moon as immersion approached together with the contrary sentiments of those whose judgment i shall always revere newton is most probably referred to makes me less confident especially in a matter wheretofore i confess i give not all the attention requisite he concludes by declining to decide whether the enlightened atmosphere which the appearance in all respects resembled belonged to sun or moon a french academician who happened to be in london at the time was less guarded in expressing an opinion the chevalier de louisville declared emphatically for the lunar atmospheric theory of the corona and his authority carried great weight it was however much discredited by an observation made by moraldi in seventeen twenty four to the effect that the luminous ring instead of travelling with the moon was traversed by it this was in reality decisive though as usual belief lagged far behind demonstration in seventeen fifteen a novel explanation had been offered by delisle and lahir supported by experiments regarded at the time as perfectly satisfactory the aureola round the eclipsed sun they argued is simply a result of the diffraction or apparent bending of the sunbeams that graze the surface of the lunar globe an effect of the same kind as the colored fringes of shadows and this view prevailed amongst men of science until and even after brewster showed with clear and simple decisiveness that such an effect could by no possibility be appreciable at our distance from the moon don jose joachim de ferrer however who observed a total eclipse of the sun at kinderhook in the state of new york on june sixteenth eighteen o six ignoring this refined optical rationale considered two alternative explanations of the phenomenon as alone possible the bright ring round the moon must be due to the illumination either of a lunar or of a solar atmosphere in the former he calculated that it should have a height fifty times that of the earth's gaseous envelope such an atmosphere he rightly concluded cannot belong to the moon but must without any doubt belong to the sun but he stood alone in this unhesitating assertion the importance of the problem was first brought fully home to astronomers by the eclipse of eighteen forty two the brilliant and complex appearance which on that occasion challenged the attention of so many observers demanded 
and received no longer the casual attention hitherto bestowed upon it but the most earnest study of those interested in the progress of science nevertheless it was only by degrees and through a process of exclusions to use a baconian phrase that the corona was put in its right place as a solar appendage as every other available explanation proved inadmissible and dropped out of sight the broad presentation of fact remained which though of sufficiently obvious interpretation was long and persistently misconstrued nor was it until eighteen sixty nine that absolutely decisive evidence on the subject was forthcoming as we shall see further on sir john herschel writing to his venerable aunt relates that when the brilliant red flames burst into view behind the dark moon on the morning of the eighth of july eighteen forty two the populace of milan with the usual inconsequence of a crowd raised the shout es leben die astronomen in reality none were less prepared for their apparition than the class to whom the applause due to the magnificent spectacle was thus adjudged and in some measure through their own fault for many partial hints and some distinct statements from earlier observers had given unheeded notice that some such phenomenon might be expected to attend a solar eclipse what we now call the chromosphere is an envelope of glowing gases by which the sun is completely covered and from which the prominences are emanations eruptive or flame-like now continual indications of the presence of this fire ocean had been detected during eclipses in the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries captain stanion describing in a letter to flamsteed an occurrence of the kind witnessed by him at Bern on may one seventeen o six says that the sun's getting out of the eclipse was preceded by a blood-red streak of light from its left limb a precisely similar appearance was noted by both halley and de louisville in seventeen fifteen during annular eclipses by lord aberdour in seventeen thirty seven and by short in seventeen forty eight the tint of the ruby border being however subdued to brown or dusky red by the surviving sunlight while observations identical in character were made at amsterdam in eighteen twenty at edinburgh by henderson in eighteen thirty six and at new york in eighteen thirty eight flames or prominences if more conspicuous are less constant in their presence than the glowing stratum from which they spring the first to describe them was a swedish professor named vesenius who observed a total eclipse at gothenburg may second seventeen thirty three his astonishment equalled his admiration when he perceived just outside the edge of the lunar disk a suspended as it seemed in the coronal atmosphere three or four reddish spots or clouds one of which was so large as to be detected with the naked eye as to their nature he did not even offer a speculation further than by tacitly referring them to the moon the observation was repeated in seventeen seventy eight by a spanish admiral but with no better success in directing efficacious attention to the phenomenon don antonio ulwa was on board his ship the espana in passage from the azores to cape st vincent on the twenty fourth of june in that year 
when a total eclipse of the sun occurred, of which he has left a valuable description. His notices of the corona are full of interest, but what just now concerns us is the appearance of a red luminous point near the edge of the moon, which gradually increases in size as the moon moved away from it and was visible during about a minute and a quarter. He was satisfied that it belonged to the sun because of its fiery color and growth in magnitude, and supposed that it was occasioned by some crevice or inequality in the moon's limb, through which the solar light penetrated. Allusions less precise, both prior and subsequent, which it is now easy to refer to similar objects, such as the slender columns of smoke seen by Ferrer, might be detailed but the evidence already adduced suffices to show that the prominences viewed with such amazement in eighteen forty two were no unprecedented or even unusual phenomena it was more important however to decide what was their nature than whether their appearance might have been anticipated they were generally and not very incorrectly set down as solar clouds arago believed them to shine by reflected light but the Abbe Petal rightly considered them to be self-luminous. Writing in a Montpelier paper of July 16, 1842, he declared that we had now become assured of the existence of a third or outer solar envelope composed of a glowing substance of a bright rose tint forming mountains of prodigious elevation analogous in character to the clouds piled above our horizons. This first distinct recognition of a very important feature of our great luminary was probably founded on an observation made by Berard at Toulon during the then recent eclipse of a very fine red band irregularly dentilated, or as it were creviced here and there, encircling a large arc of the moon's circumference it can hardly however be said to have attracted general notice until july twenty eighth eighteen fifty one on that day a total eclipse took place which was observed with considerable success in various parts of sweden and norway by a number of english astronomers mr hind saw on the south limb of the moon a long range of rose-coloured flames described by Dawes as a low ridge of red prominences resembling in outline the tops of a very irregular range of hills. Airy termed the portion of this rugged lines of projections visible to him the Sierra, and was struck with its brilliant light and nearly scarlet color. Its true character of a continuous solar envelope was inferred from these data by Grant, Swan, and Littrow, and was by Father Seshi, after the great eclipse of 1860, formally accepted as established. Several prominences of remarkable forms, especially one variously compared to a Turkish scimitar, a sickle, and a boomerang, were seen in 1851. In connection with them, two highly significant circumstances were pointed out. First, that of the approximate coincidence between their positions, and those of sunspots previously observed. Next, that the moon passed over them, leaving them behind and revealing successive portions as she advanced. 
this latter perfectly well-attested fact was justly considered by the astronomer royal and others as affording absolute certainty of the solar dependence of these singular objects nevertheless skeptics were still found mr fay of the french academy inclined to a lunar origin for them feilich of greifswald published in eighteen fifty two a treatise for the express purpose of proving all the luminous phenomena attendant on solar eclipses corona prominences and sierra to be purely optical appearances happily however the unanswerable arguments of the photographic camera were soon to be made available against such hardy incredulity thus the virtual discovery of the solar appendages both coronal and chromospheric may be said to have been begun in 1842 and completed in 1851 the current herschelian theory of the solar constitution remained however for the time intact difficulties indeed were thickening around it but their discussion was perhaps felt to be premature and they were permitted to accumulate without debate until fortified by fresh testimony into unexpected and overwhelming preponderance end of chapter three part two